The information in this podcast is educational in general nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of In the Market Trenches. Uh, if it's the first time following us, remember, you can check us out wherever podcasts are available. We're also available at snn.network. You can find us at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. You can also check us out on YouTube at youtube.com slash snnwire. You're sitting a little far back from me, Gary, won't you? Come a little closer. Yeah. Come on, it's, it's all right. So all right. today we're excited to have our guest with us, uh, Chris Somers. Um, Chris, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, this is this is our pleasure. We are super stoked that you're joining us today. Um, for the people that don't know who you are, where where can they find you in the uh, on the internets these days? And uh, maybe you share a little bit of your background. Sure, I'm on Twitter. My handle is Quisitive Invest, uh, the Inquisitive Investor. Uh, yeah, my background: I grew up in Southern Illinois. Uh, went to college in the Northeast. Initially wanted to do computer science. I was a computer geek. I built all my own computers. I started uh, an Amazon. I was the first guy to create Amazon.com. I made virtualmall.com. Our tagline was <laughs> shopped online yet you will. In 1997, <laughs> everybody thought that was crazy, but uh, proves to have been prescient. Unfortunately, we lost out to a guy named Jeff Bezos. Um, anyhow, <laughs> at college, the computer science program was really dry and uh, the profs weren't that good. So I ended up getting exposed to economics and I switched, uh, which took me into finance. Uh, I did internships on the floor of the options exchange in Chicago. Um, so I've got like, I had started out with an options background and then I used that to, uh, did an internship at Salomon Smith Barney, subsequently acquired by Citigroup. I was in the M&A group. Then I uh, did an internship at Lehman Brothers on the high grade bond desk. After college, I went full-time to Solomon Smith Barney, which became Citigroup while I was there. Uh, I was in the M&A, which got disbanded into industry groups. Then I went into consumer home building. Um, did that for a while. Uh, I got lucky enough to be chosen to be the, uh, the new analyst trainer the following summer, which means you get to basically take the summer off and just train all the new kids. Uh, during that period of time when I was able to no longer work 120 hours a week and get my head above water, um, it occurred to me that I didn't want to do banking long term. Uh, so I started looking for a job somewhere else, looked at hedge funds, ended up with job offers from uh, Third Point and Greenlight Capital. Uh, took the Greenlight Capital offer uh, in late 04. I was there 05 through 2010. Um, had a handful of relatively high profile investments, I guess. We shorted Lehman Brothers, uh, that was my position. We shorted St. Joe, that was my position. Um, and we took an ethanol company public, which I'll say is also my position it ended up being a disaster. Not everything always works in hedge funds and finance. Yeah. Uh, we actually green sided, uh, two ethanol plants in Nebraska and Minnesota and built them from the ground up. Uh, we were a little early on the ethanol boom in 05. Uh, and at first the investment looked like a home run. The bankers came in and said they could take us public at one and a half billion dollars and total capital from us into the entity was like 75 million. So it's going to be a huge home run. But literally, as we're doing the uh, S1 prospectus drafting, the ethanol market imploded. 
and we missed the window to go public. But then like four months later, it got a little bit better. So we kind of just did the IPO, uh, raised some money. Um, anyway, it ended up not working out. It subsequently became Greenbrick Partners. Um, Greenlight um, kind of took the, the tax losses from that entity and moved them over when we sold those plants to Green Plains Renewable Energy. The guy who runs that one, that's Jim Brookman. He was the guy that was from Allied Capital, right? Is that how you guys got to know him? So David and David Einhorn and Jim Brickman have a long running relationship. I'm not even sure of the origins, but even back in 05, um, Jim Brickman was a common name inside of Greenlight. Hmm. Um, so yeah, he's oh. been a good partner of Greenlight's for a long time, I think in various capacities. I always wondered what the connection was. That was, yeah. uh, there we go. It's <laughs> Press on. <laughs> yeah, so anyhow, I, I left Greenlight. Um, I took a few years off, kind of did a long sailing excursion. It's a much longer story than we have time for. But the plan was to um, buy a sailboat and hang out in the Bahamas for a few months, figuring out what I want to do, um, and then come back to New York in the fall of 2010 and get a job in finance again or start my own fund or something like that. Ended up meeting my now wife. And uh, she convinced me to keep sailing. So we ended up sailing from New York to Australia via the Panama Canal. Uh, it took about four years. She got pregnant in New Zealand. So we wrapped up the trip, sold the boat in Australia, came back, started my own little fund for a few years, um, decided asset management uh, wasn't for me for a variety of reasons. And it's time for me to go back to my tech geek roots um, and kind of try to merge my tech geek stuff with my research and finance background. And that's what led me to build on Hedged, which is uh, the product I'm working on now. And you started that when, about a year ago? So Unhedged, we all officially joined full time uh, 13 months ago, I guess, last August 1st. Um, but I've been kind of kicking around the idea for a couple of years. I actually coded the original website myself and then uh, my now CTO told me everything I did was garbage and he rewrote it all. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. So. At least you got your uh, tech geek itch scratched. Yeah, exactly. I still, do, I still do a lot of data stuff, but I no longer do any JavaScript or uh, any serious coding. <laughs> yeah, Eric and I discovered Unhedged, I don't know, six or nine months ago or whatever it was. I think you were tweeting about... Uh, you know, some FAA issues or something like that. And I, I started following you on Twitter and, uh, I, and I noticed you had this unhedged site. And so we signed up and we've only recently started using it a bit more. And, uh, you know, we're impressed with, uh, you know, sort of what you get, what you're, what you're working on and how it's evolved. Thank you. Yeah. We've been in beta for the last eight or nine months. And uh, this is obviously my first software project that I'm like leading. Um, interesting thing about software you know, it's a always evolving product. You're always improving it. And when you're a startup like we are, you've got to, you, you're trying to do two things at the same time. You're trying to build and add features, but you're also trying to minimize bugs and control the quality of the product. Now in beta, which we're in, as you're adding features at a fast pace, which we've been doing, it's very hard to manage the bugs and the quality assurance side. So you've got to choose, you know, basically dial in like how fast you want to build features versus how overall sound you want the website. And the first seven or eight months um, this year, we basically just completely focused on feature growth. Um, in the last month or so, we've kind of 
reached a, a good level where we are with features and we've spent the last month really focused on bug cleanup, data cleanup, making the site work better. Um, and that's going to be a, a large part of the drive throughout the rest of the year is getting it to what I refer to as a, a commercializable state where the product is stable, sound, people are not running into issues. There's no data integrity issues. Um, we're in a pretty good spot now and it's only improving. So anybody that's ever checked it out, um, if you saw something a few months ago, check it out again. Now it's in a much greater uh, place of stability and data integrity and it's uh, only improving from here. So yeah. yeah very cool. I mean, it's, it's a cool platform. We're excited that we, uh, that we get to use it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's like a nice centralized place that where I can host a lot of the research that I do and not have to go to a bunch of different places. So um, it's, it's been very useful. Yeah. Awesome. So you have a pretty uh, unique background. Um, you know, kind of the, the gist of the show. We want to hear about some more stories. Um, it sounds like we could have you on multiple times. <laughs> not to just hear investing adventures, but also just regular adventures. The options so, trading platform, the banking, the hedge fund. I take take your pick. Where are we going? Where uh, what do you have? What do you have for us? Yeah, I've got no shortage of war stories, and God <laughs> knows I lost a lot of money in various positions at Greenlight. Um, shorts that blew up on us, and longs that didn't pan out. And there's even investment banking horror stories where. I was working on a, a client NASCAR and international speedway and they wanted us to build this insane model to do all the racetracks and how attendance would track and swapping assets. And I had to work four days straight with no sleep in that one. Um, very demanding client. Anyhow, uh, the most, uh, a more recent one that is kind of interesting when I had my own fund, which I ran from 14 through 17, uh, one of the day one investments was a preferred stock in a paper company in Australia. The story was in 0506, Paperlinks slash Spicers was one of the largest global manufacturers and distributors of paper. Uh, think printer paper, print paper used for annual reports, paper used for catalogs, all that stuff. And it was a five or $6 billion market cap company back then. Um, they were profitable. They made a lot of money. Revenue was big, multi-billion dollars. Um, and then of course, you know, with the internet paper, the sales are declining. Um, they did a preferred offering in 07. They sold $250 million of seven and a half percent non-cumulative perpetual preferred at a hundred dollars a share. Um, and literally like nine months later, 12 months later, the great financial crisis happens. Uh, similar to what just happened with COVID where the work from home trend was vastly accelerated and people migrating to technology was pulled forward five years. The great financial crisis really pulled forward a lot of the digitization of records and the paper thing went away much faster when that happened. So paper links became a sinking ship. Now what's interesting about paper links and why it was an interesting situation is they had no debt, they had no liabilities and they had $200 million of cash on the balance sheet. So their only liability was this perpetual uh, preferred stock. And the, the coupon was uh, non-cumulative and at the option of the board. So when... So we have, we've had some adventures in, in, in preferreds uh, over time. Maybe some of them we'll talk about later. Uh, maybe some of them we won't. Some we'd rather forget. Um, but uh, 
did this preferred come with any real rights? A lot of times that we find these, 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 these prefs can be rather toothless. Uh, it was completely toothless, came with no rights. That was a known going in. Um, the trick here was at the time, the preferred shares, when we bought them, they were trading at eight cents on the dollar, $8. The par was $100. The common stock was trading at three cents a share. The market cap of the common stock, I think, was like 30 million. The market cap of the pref was call it 40 or 50 million. So the entire the entire capitalization was 70 or 80 million dollars, and they still had 200 million bucks of cash on the balance sheet, and they were positive networking capital. Of course, it's a lot of that's inventory of paper, so obviously not worth par. Um, so what? Are, yeah. So what ended up the the it took four years to um, fight the war, but the reason it was interesting is. When the markets imploded in 08 or 09, all of the management at Paperlinks that were like real people, they, they were like guys that oversaw a multi-billion dollar company when it was a viable business, they all left. And the stock went from like six or seven bucks a share to three cents. Um, and there's a, a gentleman, I won't name his name, in Australia who um, made a lot of money, a small fortune, one or $200 million dollars. Um, importing things into Australia from China. And he's kind of a shady, unscrupulous guy. And he saw the stock was trading at two to three cents a share. And he did the math and he's like, if I put in 3 million bucks, I can basically buy 10% of the company. I'll take over the board because nobody cares about it. I'll bring my buddies in. We'll all pay ourselves a lot of money. Um, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, he took over 10% of the company. He brought in two close friends, one of who was a kind of senior high profile person in uh, the Australian social society. He was a barrister. Um, and, uh, you know, basically the, the, the challenge was how do we get these guys to the table to negotiate with us to convert the preferred into common stock so that we can actually try to manage this business and salvage the value that remains Right. Um, and that was a lot of work. We had to basically connect all the dots of all of what we perceived to be malfeasance occurring at the company and then present all of the things that they had done that we thought were questionable or wrong or, you know, just below the table, if you will. Um, I, we basically went to them and said, hey, you guys are doing things here that if everybody knew what you were doing, you'd probably not be viewed favorably. Uh, why don't we try to work something out here? Um, and so we ultimately did uh, and it ended up successful. But, you know, it was two or three years of a lot of snooping and investigative work and private exclusive meetings from guys that would fly here from Australia <laughs> A lot of crazy so, stuff. So, so, so you, you approached them and you said this, and like, what was the initial response? Oh, you know, we're beyond reproach or, or what? Initial response was take a hike. There's nothing you can do. You don't have any governance rights. You can stay out there as long as we want. Um, so, yeah. And so the, the, did you have to sort of prove it out and show it, show, show them your was, work? Or, or What was the catalyst for them to just change their tune? It was a, a long-term grind down. We uh, filed litigation against them or we threatened litigation. Uh, I wrote like a 40 page deposition detailing all kinds of things that I thought were 
issues. Um, I mean, we, lots of groundwork, um, you know, getting on your hands and knees and looking for all these little issues that were occurring there. You hire Kroll to check them out and do all this other stuff or, or something, whatever the Australian something similar. I was, I kind of played the role of Kroll, but we found a kind of a Kroll similar thing in Australia. Got it. Um, so in the end, uh, you know, you finally got them to convert to the common shares and then what happened? Did they melt down the company what, or did they turn into a runner like a real business or? So we, we, the preferreds ended up with 70% of the equity and then we, within three months, sold it to a Japanese buyer. Oh, wow. Well, that's something. And did you wind up getting board representation or, or any experience? Yep. Like that? We got all, we took over the entire board. Yeah, we took over the entire board. Hmm. And what, what was that experience like having going in there and be, being able to peer uh, under the kimono? Uh, we had, we're not really allowed to talk about what we saw under the kimono. Um, I, I think it was what we expected. Uh, it was what we expected. It just hadn't been managed well and, you know, employee morale was bad. And really at the time, it, it really wasn't a bad company. I mean, they'd sold off a lot of the bad assets that were really problematic. And at the end of the day, like the distribution business, they still had, they'd gotten completely out of manufacturing. The distribution business, it was declining low single digits, but it was manageable and it was either cash flow break even in some regions or cash flow positive in others. Um, little tweaks here and there, like easily improved profitability and kind of dressed it up ready for sale. Got it. I mean, you dressed it up ready for, I mean, you, how long did it take you to sell the company once you got the you know, I thought three months, but now that we're talking about it, I remember that the being on the board stuff was lasted longer. So it might've taken nine months to a year. I don't remember the total sequence of events, but I think we sold it in the summer of 17. Maybe we took over the board in the fall of 16. And what was the experience of selling it like? I mean, did you hire a bank and just run a process or? What? So I actually didn't get involved with that. Um, I stepped back. I kind of stayed in the shadows for a lot of it. Um, there was another fund in New York that worked on that. And there were some investors in Australia that worked on that. Got it. And so were you one of the lead investors in the PREF? Did you know the other PREF holders? Did you know? By the time it was all said and done, I would say by halfway through two thirds of the way into it, I knew most of the other material PREF holders and I was a material PREF holder. Got it. There was like five or six of us that all had material stakes, like 5% or more. Got it. Wow. I don't think we covered this before. How did you initially find, find this name? A uh, great question. I think that um, a friend of mine in New York had mentioned it to me as like, hey, check out this pref. It's trading at like eight cents on the dollar. Um, and it also has no debt. You know, that's always like an interesting place to kind of snoop, but prefs rarely have governance rights. So if you're going to go into one of those, you need to figure out how you're going to get the people with governance rights to play ball with you. <laughs> yeah. Well, in our case, in our case, I'm remembering more as I'm talking about it, but the prefs did have a lot of negative covenants where like they couldn't sell the company. If they were to sell the company, we would get a hundred, we would get, we had liquidation preference. Sure. Um, there were other clauses in the documents that like helped our negotiating position when it came time to tell them like, it's time to convert us to common. Right. Basically the writing was on the wall that 
if they continued on the path they were on, not only were they destroying value, there was all kinds of other reputational risk and issues. And, um, you know, they like got the leverage. What's that? That's where you got all the leverage. Yeah, to a large degree. <laughs> wow. Yeah, oftentimes we find with these prefs, I mean, they, they, they have basically no rights. Maybe they get a board seat or two if they don't pay the dividend for a couple of years. And uh, even we that. We didn't even have that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we did, we did a sufficient negative covenants, I guess. Like the liquidation preference thing was huge. There were some other, um, there was, oh, what was it? Um, I'm not going to remember it. There was a technical violation they had too that we were pushing on where they had violated some covenant. I can't remember if it was um, a time, if it was related to how much time had passed since they'd last paid a dividend or what, but uh, we were also arguing with them about that. Um, we had a lot of, by time we got them to negotiate, we had like five or six significant pressure points on them. So you, you, you had the choke hold on and you just kind of squeezed it. Yep, that's what we tried to do. <laughs> Was there anything throughout the process that made you think that the investment might not work out or it might go sideways or sour? There was one risk. They had, um, the European operations were a disaster and the European operations had largely unionized employees. And when we bankrupted, we, we put all of those entities into receivership. Um, as part of that process, there was a question of whether or not the unions could claim cross-jurisdictional, cross-jurisdictional, um, essentially collateralizability to where, sure, the entity that we bankrupted in the UK doesn't have any money, so the union doesn't have any recourse for their pension, but can they come after the cash balance in Australia? Right. And there was a two-year window where they had the ability to try to pursue that. Um, had they pursued that, that would have greatly diminished the investment prospects, um, but they never did end up pursuing that. Why didn't they just try to tender for the prefs at some like low price, but it was enough to make you guys go away? I think they did. Um, and I think we said no. I think the, the tender discussions were in like the 30 cents, a 30 cents a share range and where we ended up selling it to... Um, the Japanese buyer ended up being the equivalent of like closer to 50 cents on the dollar. Wow. Um, we had a pretty good idea of what the value was and we were pretty confident in our <clears throat> positions. So I don't, I, don't I don't do a lot of investing in Australia, but how it, it, it's an Anglo-Saxon <laughs> legal framework, right? So did you, did you feel like you had, if you went the legal route, like you might've been able to do, you know, you prevail. Nah, the legal route was very tricky for a handful of reasons. One, um, the liberal laws there for if you say anything slanderous against somebody, uh, they can sue you very easily. Mm -hmm. uh, and the characters we were dealing with um, were very sensitive to what would be said about them publicly. And that would have been a, a dangerous route. Uh, further, the person, I won't go into too much detail here, but one of the characters involved was a very senior person in the Australian legal system. And I uh, was basically friends. We actually had, if I'm recalling this correctly, <clears throat> we did have legal proceedings ongoing and we had dockets in front of the judge. And every time the guy at, at our company was friends with the guy that was overseeing the, 
the case. Either their kids went to the same private school in Sydney or they are at the same country club or the same marina or whatever. Right. Um, so that was tricky. And I wasn't that, con I, wa I had zero confidence in um, the legal system there because we were United States investors. Right. Um, and we also didn't have a lot of confidence in their regulatory bodies because we flagged things to them years in a row and they didn't do anything. So. Hmm. So, I mean, I guess it was fortunate that it worked out and you guys were able to engineer and sell the company. What are, what are some of the key lessons from the whole experience? What, 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 you know, despite it being successful and I guess if I had to do it all over again, would I, I, I don't know, but I think something that gets underestimated in some activism stuff is you probably always underestimate how much time it's going to take. And you probably also underestimate a lot of the ancillary costs that go into it. Um, I mean, I, I would guess the legal fees I, uh, my fund spent took somewhere between 10 and 15% of the total profits that we ended up capturing. Um, so legal fees are not insignificant. Um, the how leg much work and damage did you incur along the way? Oh, significant, significant. I mean, I, if I pulled up my folder on this company now, I probably wrote over 200 pages of reports on them for the lawyers and for the courts. Um, I it was just so much stuff. I'm looking in my folder right now. I've got, I don't know, 20 different folders on different things I had to send to the court in response to responses. We got, we were looking for discovery. Um, yeah, all kinds of stuff. There was a, um, what would be the equivalent of a custodian in the United States. We had to file things with the custodian of our shares um, to tell them there was a technical violation in the terms of the, there's just so much stuff. It's, it's much better to just find a company that you like a lot that's going to grow over the next <laughs> five, 10 years and just set it and forget it. It's like my wife a year ago said, just buy Netflix in my IRA. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, there you go. <laughs> but then we can't have you on the podcast talking about the fun stories. Yeah, I got other stories. <laughs> Any, anything more on the, uh, on the Australian story? There's more detail, but a lot of it I'm uh, not allowed to talk about. You know, I guess you don't want me to talk about that part. Some of the cloak and dagger <laughs> yeah. stuff would be like you know having quasi secret meetings with former employees and. You know, people saying, here's things off the record, people sending me photographs and evidence. There were, um, there were ex-wives involved. There were in Australia, there was a whole cast of characters. Um, <laughs> it was, it was pretty fascinating. Um, <laughs> wow. There were like, you know, apparently like nightclubs in Hong Kong with illegal drugs and all kinds of weird stuff. <laughs> oh my. I think you hit on all the high points for a good uh, in the market trenches story. <laughs> this has been my favorite one so far. <laughs> yeah, uh, Chris, we really appreciate you sharing the story with us. Um, if, if you know, for, in case people didn't hear you in the beginning, where else can they find more information? Where can they follow you? Where can they find out more information on Unhedged and what you're up to now? Yeah, go to unhedged.com and uh, anybody can create an account for free. We're still in beta. Uh, we don't have a paywall up. It's free to sign up. You can sign up using Twitter, Gmail, Facebook, any of that good stuff or just email password. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm fairly active on Twitter, I guess. Uh, it's at Inquisitive Invest, Inquisitive Investor. 
Um, and I'm, you know, constantly kind of sharing stuff on Unhedged as well. The idea behind Unhedged relative to Twitter being that it's, we've got a feature very similar to Twitter, but it's much more focused exclusively on like higher quality FinTwit content. Um, so it's, right. it's useful in that regard. Very cool. And remember, you can check us out anywhere podcasts are available. Check us out at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. You can check us out at snn.network or on the SNN YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash snnwire. Chris, thank you very much for being on the show with us. We really appreciate it. No, this, is, this was great. It was fun. And uh, it sounds like uh, we, we may want to have you back for other stories. Yeah. Definitely. I'm happy to come back. Yeah, we need, we need to grab a beer sometime <laughs> and trade some stories. When, when everyone's allowed to do yeah, that again. When we're allowed to do that. <laughs> Definitely. Sounds great. All, All right. right. Thanks, Chris. Awesome. Thank Thanks a lot, guys. The information in this podcast is educational in general nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.